is ChaosCast, the Chaos Community Podcast, where we share use cases and experiences with measuring open source community health, elevating conversations about metrics, analytics, and software from the Community Health Analytics Open Source Software, or short Chaos Project, to wherever you like to listen. Welcome to this episode. This podcast is sponsored by our friends at Sustain, a community of open source enthusiasts and professionals that care about the future of open source. Learn more at sustainoss.org. Hello and welcome to Chaos Cast. My name is Benia. I am your host for probably what is one of the most awesome revisits. It's also the first revisit we have here on Chaos Cast. I would like to welcome our new guest, Jono Bacon, who's, fun fact, not so new. <laughs> Hello, everyone. It's nice to be back. I feel quite honored that this is I'm, I'm your first recap. I'm assuming everybody else said no. <laughs> I'm okay with that. I'm okay with other people saying no, and I get it. So that's fine. <laughs> I mean, it's definitely not there, but I think that a large majority of, like, we're two years old now for chaos. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. Before we kind of move forward from there, let's introduce our two wonderful panelists who, if you've been listening to us for those two years, you probably know, Georg Leek. Hey, my name is Georg. Great to be back with you. Since we have rotating panelists, I'll just introduce myself real quick. I'm co-founder of the Chaos Project. I'm on the governing board on a lot of these episodes. And in my daytime job, I work at Biturge as the director of sales. And Lori. Hi, everyone. I'm Lori Goldman. I'm the developer community lead at IndyKite, which is a Web3 identity and access management tool. And I'm also a CMX co-host. And I am also loving being a Chaos Podcast panelist. So without further ado, we're super happy to have you. And for those of our listeners, we are really excited. We kind of touched on it a little bit. We are actually revisiting a few of our earlier episodes one of which was with Jono Bacon. That'll be way back in episode seven. The link to that podcast is actually in the show notes and it's got so many incredible nuggets that we had back in 2020. The way that online community has evolved over the course of the histories. It was just an awesome interview with Jono. But if you aren't familiar with that episode, we have Jono Bacon on. Can you introduce yourself for the newcomers? And we can kind of refresh a little bit of the old timers here at Chaos. Well, hey everyone, my name is Jono. So I'm essentially a coach and a consultant. I've been incredibly passionate about figuring out how to build communities effectively for the last 22 years now. I used to lead community at GitHub, Canonical, and XPRIZE. And my work is kind of broken into two areas. One is I work one-on-one consulting with companies, early stage startups through to big companies like Samsung, Deutsche Bank, Microsoft, places like that. But then I also do group coaching where I bring people together in some of my programs, one of which is called the Community Experience Masterclass, where I help people to either build new communities or optimize existing communities. And I just, everything about community I find interesting. And therefore, I'm that kind of that guy who goes around irritating all of his non-community friends about why this is so interesting. So it's nice to be among like-minded people for once, as opposed to my, well, everybody else. (laughs) Wonderful. Thank you for introducing yourself. And I guess... What we're going to do, because this is like the first revisit that we've really done, it'll probably be a mix of old updates, how you doing, what's going on, what's changed in the community industry and your little pointer, kind of revisiting some of that Mm. prior episode. And then other ones will just be like completely new remixes. Like Laurie has already dropped the ever so famous Web3 term. Cool. 
I'm ready to go. Awesome. So to kind of start, the first question that we had on that first big podcast, I think is worth us revisiting. I believe it was Nicole Huseman who asked, what are the key strategies that you've been using lately to propel your personal career, your development as a community manager? Well, what's interesting to me is that I think it was around the time that we actually last connected. The last two years has been a blur for me. I've been consulting for a number of years and I've always enjoyed that. But the thing I've always wanted to do was to be exposed to as many different problems as I can so I can keep learning and growing. And the downside of being a consultant where everything's going really well, rates are going up, but because your rates go up, it limits you to a certain set of use cases. And it means that you don't work with a lot, like most people you're not working with. So I wanted to kind of scale that out. And that's when I started building some of these group coaching masterclasses. And one of the things that's been super interesting about this is I've spent the last 20 years trying to figure out all the nuances of the blueprint for how to build communities. How do we design a community experience and how do we get people through the door and how do we engage with them and how do we demonstrate success with metrics and the role of social media and content and events and all of this stuff that we love talking about. But when, you know, and when I was working one-on-one with people and when I continue to work one-on-one with people, I can kind of hold their hand through the journey. If there's something they don't know, they can ask me very specifically about what to do and we can figure out what to do. But when you're working with a group of people, I think we need to be much more proactive about designing ways of building community that are easily consumable, that can be applied easily without, even though with my masterclasses, people can reach out to me one-on-one via email, I've got to design it in a way that's going to apply to a much broader set of use cases. So for example, you know, when I run my first masterclass, I had people from like pharmaceuticals and consumer gaming and all these places where I'd like, I'd never work with anyone in pharmaceuticals. So how do I apply what I've known to that? So I've spent a lot of time in the last two years really thinking about the application of expertise as opposed to just the expertise itself. And what I love about all of this is that everything I learned can be applied to communities because as community managers, when we think about how we enable people to be successful, in many cases, it is the application of expertise. Like when Laurie's working in Web3, when you help to teach someone in a Web3 community, how do they take that information and apply it? So I feel like I've been in like Stranger Things and like the upside down on the other side of what we normally done and what we normally do. It's been super interesting. Yeah. And one of the main areas, because Socially Constructed last we spoke two years ago was also completely different. Yeah. And I completely changed my business architecture and business structure as well. I feel like there's something to this. Like we've discovered a new model that allows for broader community teaching. Now it's applying kind of as an industry, like Carmen over at Community Coach is doing it. Yeah. I think what's fascinating to me is that as the web evolves, the underlying infrastructure for how human beings are connected evolves. And it's like anything, like the beginning of anything in my mind, it's always kind of a little crazy. Like we're seeing this in Web3 right now. Web3, for all intents and purposes, from what I can see, is the Wild West. And there's some stability forming in the Wild West, but it's still a Wild West. And that's great because that's how innovation begins. And I think we're seeing the same thing with any new industries or any new areas of expertise forming. I think we've been talking about communities in a structured way for, at least in my mind, for about 10 or 15 years now. When I started out, without sounding like an old man, when I started working at Canonical as the Ubuntu community manager, I'd never heard the term community manager before. I'd never seen it anywhere. And now community managers or DevRel or whatever else is ubiquitous, which is wonderful. So I think at the beginning, when you get any industry forming, everyone's just trying to figure out how to do it. And now I think we're all, we've got a good sense of how to do it. Now we're figuring out about how to make it consumable, which I think is interesting. Is anyone else seeing to, along with this kind of a, a shift away from community platforms to, I wouldn't say hacking, but moving toward integrating and working with different tools as opposed to having everything centralized? And I'm wondering that this is the thing that I've just kind of been mulling about. 
does that have to do with the onset of Web3? Are we going to want more intimate experiences? Because one of the things we learn is like, keep them in the community. I've been skeptical of the all-in-one kind of community platforms for a while now for a couple of reasons. One is I think if you put all of your eggs in one basket, it doesn't necessarily work as well. I'm a big believer that you have best of breed tools. I'd rather use a world-class email automation platform combined with a world-class community platform than one platform that attempts to do both, for example. The problem is you've got to wire those things together. But I think the growth of the no-code movement has really helped to integrate these things much better than ever before. This is one of the reasons why I'm a prolific Zapier user. But I think one thing that's really interesting there, Laurie, that you're talking about when it comes to web is like with Web3 is the impact of Web3 on communities. And in my mind, to me, like there's the decentralization element of it, which I think is going to really pop in the next five years, in my view. But to me, what's particularly interesting about Web3 is the incentive model and the idea that people get tokens or coins when they participate in communities. And I'll be honest with you, I'm incredibly skeptical of this because from my experience, just my personal viewpoint, I'm, I'd love to be proven wrong about this, that the minute you have any kind of financial incentive into a group of people, it tremendously skews the incentive model. It tremendously skews what people are willing to work for. It's one of the reasons why I'd much rather give someone a $10 gift card than a $10 note, or I'd rather give them $10 in credit to something than a $10 bill or, you know, something along those lines. I just think money can be challenging there, but, you know, this is a new way of doing it with Web3. And I think we'll learn a lot in the next couple of years. John, I'm looking at you and I see, I think, the Octocat on your t-shirt just shining through. Is that yep. the Octocat? It is. Yeah. So One of the 200 GitHub t-shirts in our apps. <laughs> <laughs> We're talking about decentralization and in open source, we have seen a centralization happening in the last 10 years while GitHub has grown from, I don't know, a million to how many million repositories now? And an open source project almost inevitably is, if not on GitHub, at least mirrored on GitHub. Hmm. And it hasn't been until I think this past year that there is more and more of a move off of GitHub again, where it's more and more people realizing that we need to have control of our own tools. We need to have diversity in the ecosystem of tooling. Yeah. I think what's fascinating about this is to me, and I'm not by any stretch an expert on Web3, I will defer to Laurie and other folks about this. To me, the push towards decentralization, I think, was really inspired. If there's anyone that's pushed us to a more decentralized world, it's Facebook. This idea that you're part of the platform, you're part of the service where they know everything about you. And it's less about the collection of the information. It's bringing that information together to form something new. I remember years ago, probably, I don't know, maybe even 20 years ago, there was a case in the UK where a bunch of, I think it was, I forget the exact details, so don't quote me on this, but there was something like the addresses of a bunch of pedophiles was leaked online. It was published in the newspapers. And what happened was people took that information and then they combined it with maps. And it was the first time we really started seeing information plotted on maps in any significant way. So that made it then easier for people to see if there's anyone who lives near their house or something like that. We should have been okay if it wasn't the fact that a lot of people got it wrong and a bunch of pediatricians appeared on that map as well, confusing everything. So to me, where it gets really interesting here is when you combine, somebody's got a, a collection of data on you and they amalgamate together in different ways. I think people are worried about how that information can be used. And I think that's been the push towards decentralization. The thing that I find fascinating about GitHub is I think GitHub is the most perfect example of developer pragmatism, where developers back when GitHub was becoming a real thing, were of the view, you know what? I know it's not open source. I know it's not free software. I know issue tracking sucks back then, but it's easy. 
and I can put my code up there easily and my friends are using it and they made a pragmatism call. And I don't think that's going to change. I don't think we're going to see a massive shift away from GitHub in terms of communities, because I think most people don't really care. And with GitHub, I think it's a little bit different because Git is open and you can clone that code anywhere. There's a built-in safety valve there. But what you don't have, of course, is issue tracking is not in there. Discussions are not in there. All the metadata around the project are not there. So it wouldn't surprise me if there'll be a move to, and maybe this already exists, projects where you can manage like issues and other metadata inside of those repos. But I think the move away from GitHub is unlikely to happen unless GitHub really start messing things up and delivering a more inferior service. And what you're pointing out is that it is those things around the source code, around the Git repositories that really make up the community. The conversations right. are happening in the issue, yeah. in the pull requests. And so it just makes sense to be in a platform where everyone has an account and can participate. Yeah. Yeah. One of the more interesting things that I've discovered, like one of the areas Socially Constructed has been working on is bringing a lot of anthropological theory crafting and stuff into this. And Mm. that isn't really new, that infrastructure. Like grapevine communication has, for lack of a better word, this is an actual term, grapevine communication has usurped structural communication as a way for people to interact in an organization and grease the wheels. It works far more than structured communication and there's no way to stop it. It's just that now on the internet where structure and conversation is no longer as centralized, as centralized being the important part here, grapevine communication is becoming more plausible and more viable and you're able to keep projects straight despite increased grapevine communication happening outside of your structures. So I think a lot of community managers are reeling from the fact of like, does it need to be in community though? Because in all actuality, that grapevine communication is more valuable than an individual engagement contribution. Yeah. I love the fact that you do all this kind of research as well, because I think it really helps people to understand those underlying principles because we often get so distracted by the tactics, the understanding those mechanics of how we work together is super important. Yeah. And kind of setting that topic aside, though, I want to go back to another one that you mentioned, which was this concept of not really trusting what I call the cruise ship model of data structure which is basically these larger companies that are like, we're going to provide everything. We have a swimming pool, we have a casino, we have all these things on the ship. And it's just one single captain and one single team trying to manage all of it versus on the other side of this model is like a Navy cruise-like fleet, which is every single ship has a very specific purpose. It's very best of breed. This one just does emails and it does really well. And then this ship over here just does social and does it really well. Where do you think that's going to take us moving into the future of Web3? I think the all-in-one breakfast buffet, I think there's always going to be a place for that. And I think especially for people who are less technical in nature, those kinds of platforms can be really helpful. And I think especially for folks where integration is a nightmare, that those platforms can be useful. For example, for my business, I can use whatever I want. I get to decide because I run my own business. But if you're working at a big company and you've got to go through an exhaustive security review with every tool that you're running, then bringing in five tools is five security reviews. It's the five levels of billing and there's all this complexity around it. So just getting the misery out the right way with one tool can be helpful and then you're good to go. Or where you can't integrate certain things together due to firewalls or this, that and the other. But I think that what's happening and what's been happening in recent years is the integration revolution is going on, right? Is that 
companies out the gate are building integrations directly between platforms and tools. Like I see this with a, a whole bunch of tools that I use is that they have native integrations for many of the things that I run. And then when you can't use that, you've got Zapier that basically kind of fills in the gaps, which I think generally like Zapier has got this bad reputation of being brittle. And I actually think that's a kind of an unfair wrap of Zapier. Like from my experience, and I have some pretty like wiry zaps that I use. So general rule, it works all right. The time where it suffers is if when services have blips of downtime is where it struggles. So I suspect that what's going to happen is we're going to see both of these audiences served. I think we'll see the all-in-one approach. And then we'll also see people just wanting to use separate tools and glue them together. I don't know how Web3 will massively impact that. I mean, I do think there's going to be this move towards decentralization. Like I'm seeing more and more companies, for example, who don't want to use Google Analytics for various reasons. Some of those reasons, it's the GDPR is unbelievably complicated and it's, there's too much of a liability there, especially for companies that are based out of Europe. And I think for some, it's because they want to, they want to protect the privacy of their users. And there are other tools kind of spinning up into that space, but it's still to this day, from my personal observational experience, it's a very narrow group of people. Most people want to learn as much as they can about their audience. And then you've got the more extreme view of we'll track nothing. We'll tr- we'll, there's nothing we'll track, which I think is impractical because you need data to be able to improve. So we'll figure this out. This is where I think it's going to be the Wild West again. It'll get messy and then we'll figure it out. Speaking of the Wild West, and you've talked about how initially communities were all trying to figure it out. There were no community managers, open source. Seems to have matured quite a bit where now we have a situation where it's even governments stepping in and starting to make demands of like supply chain software supply chain management and the community is having to respond to some of these really big demands because it's no longer just, oh, we have this fun project, we're playing with it. Oh, now we are waking up to the reality that our digital infrastructure is relying on this. And what we are doing is not just important, but it's critical. So do you see changes in communities and how communities work due to these new demands that are being put on them? Yeah, I'm seeing that too. And I think there's going to be some casualties in this. So I think one of the things that this is kind of my philosophy, and then I'll kind of zone into the question a little bit more specifically. My philosophy is that no matter what problems we see ahead of us, whether it's big challenges like supply chain or whether it's individual things like I ran a webinar and it didn't go very well, whatever challenges we face in front of us, everything will be all right. And the reason why everything will be all right is because baked into the human condition is kindness. Right. There's people out there and they're trying to convince us social media that everybody's mean and everybody's nasty to each other. I don't buy it. I think most people in the world are good people. They're generous people. They're kind people. But there are bad habits that have formed that turn good people into negative people. They're still good people, but they're negative people. And I think social media is especially guilty of that. And this ridiculous march towards vanity and narcissism that everybody has to have an Instagram filter on and everybody wants to show the life that they're pretending to have, but not their real life. It's unhealthy for our society. But to me, fundamentally, the human condition hasn't changed, is that we're good people. And that kindness will get us through all of this. So no matter what problems we face, whether it's supply chain or whether it's a bad webinar, the desire for people to be able to spend time with each other and learn and grow and benefit from each other, I don't think that's ever going to go away. What I find comforting about that is that we'll always figure it out. We then just need to zone into these individual challenges and figure out how we solve those individual challenges. But they're all part of a, we're on the right boat moving forward. I think when it comes to supply chain specifically, 
Where it gets difficult is that I think a lot of people who build communities or in community management jobs or DevRel or whatever it might be, their intrinsic motivation for that work is creating environments where people can collaborate and have autonomy around what they want to do. Like I build a developer community because I want developers to be able to build great code and to create great software. So when we have things like supply chain, it's boring. It's just not very interesting having to think about the supply chain. Nobody really wants to think about this. But it's like boring, necessary work that has to be done to maintain the integrity of especially open source infrastructure in the world. We need to resolve this issue. So I think where we're going to face some casualties is I think there are going to be some people who are in a community role who are going to be expected to understand this topic and to be able to support their communities and to iterate on this topic. But they're going to really struggle to rustle the energy for it because, or, or the excitement about it, because it's not intrinsically what excites them about it. And I think we all have that to a certain degree. Like, I hate paperwork in all of its miserable, horrendous forms, and no pun intended. So I have somebody who I hire to take care of that who's really good at it and who loves that kind of work. But we can't outsource this stuff in communities. So I think some community managers are going to struggle to get excited about it. And therefore, if we're not excited about something, we don't do our best work. And I think that's where we'll see some casualties. But I think we'll do what we always do is we'll adapt, we'll learn, we'll improve. And the more we have podcasts like this events like the Open Source Summit and other events and things like that, I think that will help everybody to be successful. Wonderful way to say it. While open source software today is powering critical infrastructure, the open source ecosystem as a whole is rapidly changing, facing challenges for governance, maintenance, maintainer burnout, funding, marketing, and more. Are you concerned about these things for your open source software too? Well, in the sustained community, we discuss these challenges and share solutions for how to sustain open source in the long haul. We meet once per year in person, and the rest of the time we keep the fire burning in our discourse forum. Join our conversations at sustainoss.org and sustainoss on Twitter. I really like this notion that the internet culture that we've built uh, the internet culture that Web 2.0 has led to is still fundamentally reversible because the foundations of the internet are in all ways human. And that yeah. means that it is possible for us to take back those notions. Kind of moving into a more technical aspect though, what do you think the role of community managers is going to need to be in order for that to happen? And how do you recommend we get that started with the key stakeholders we can access using this podcast, the community managers, the DevRel specialists? Do you mean in terms of like resolving the supply chain issue or do you mean in terms of like just reclaiming our civility? Reclaiming our spaces. And that could be very much so a task-centered. We need to make sure that our communities are well-structured, well-organized, that data is catered to in a way that the community is okay with. Like there's these technical aspects, but there's also the relational aspects, right? Yeah. What should a community manager's responsibility be to the community? Do they have a responsibility to the safety, security, and anonymity of their people, regardless of their platform? And yeah. how are they supposed to navigate that technically? Yeah. In my mind, there's kind of three layers to this. I think there is, there's a policy layer that community managers are going to be helping to shape and define. I think there's a technology layer of the tools and the services we use to deliver this. And then I think there's a influence layer. As human beings, we mimic other people's actions, how you see the actions that you want people to mimic. The thing that worries me, and I know we'll get through this, but the thing that worries me right now is that we are developing parts of society, and I think especially on social media, 
is becoming remarkably intolerant towards people who they disagree with. And my view has always been, somewhat has always been, the base layer of any community has to be safety, right? You want to create an environment where people can be safe and they can engage in a way where they're not going to get harassed or bullied or any of those horrible things. Their information, their privacy is safe as well. And I think that's really important. We should never compromise on that. But we also need to create a layer, I think, on top of that, where to me, what makes communities so beautiful is that it becomes this melting pot of ideas. So people come into the community with ideas that you never have imagined, and then people collaborate around it. I've seen this countless times in the past when I've been in open source projects where somebody comes in with something they want to build that nobody ever even thought of, and it's a great idea. And then they work on it, and now it makes that software better. So I think we, by definition, the foundational layer is safety and equality. And then on top of that, you then have this layer where we want creativity. And what worries me about what we're seeing on social media is that we're seeing a trend of people pick a position and then anyone who doesn't have that position is wrong or anyone who doesn't have that position is bad. And I think we need to create environments where reasonable people can have reasonable disagreements. Like some of the best things I've learned in my life were from some of my biggest critics, especially when I was a canonical, like we'd have some people who were super critical of what we were doing. And almost all of those people are really good friends now because they were really helpful in opening up my mind in a different way. But I think the only way in which we can do that is if we create environments where you can have people who you really disagree with, who can operate in that community and where you can have interesting conversations, again, with a requirement around safety and equality. Like to me, if somebody's an a-hole and they come into that community, or if somebody's harassing people or they're bullying people, it's a zero-sum game, get them out. Like they shouldn't be a part of that. And I think it's incumbent on community managers to maintain that culture. I think we have to, I remember when I was a canonical, I used to talk to my team about this all the time. We'd have like some people in the community who'd be incredibly critical and almost just kind of disrespectful. And I'd always say to my team members who they'd be complaining about this person. And I'd always say to them, our job is to go out there and be classy. Like we need to kill them with kindness. Like if we go out there and we listen instead of trying to shut them down, then the community is going to see that that's how we should operate. Even though it's tempting to just kick them and to move them out and to find reasons to get rid of them. And I think that's where, in my mind, community managers are more important in the world than ever before because social media's get, gotten everybody into this bad habit of just, oh, I don't like you, therefore you're evil. And there are evil people in the world. I'm not saying that we shouldn't push the evil people out, but I think most communities don't have those evil people in them. And if they are evil people in those communities, they're a small minority that are in them. So to me, it's, I just think when you create an environment where somebody who you radically disagree with, who wants to do something in your community that seems silly or wrong or whatever, where we all have a really inclusive, engaging, interactive conversation about that. And then if it's not a good idea, you say, okay, well, we've decided we're not going to do that. Let's move on. And I think that's what we need more than ever. And I don't think that requires technology, but it requires really good judgment. And it also requires being able to counsel and guide community members who do want to like kick people out or get or shut people down for whatever reason. You know, we shut people down, we get rid of people when they're non-inclusive, when they're aggressive, when they're harassing people, but reasonable people should be able to have reasonable disagreements. I know that was an extremely long-winded answer. <laughs> but I think it's an important one, right? Because it's one of the chief complaints that a lot of people have about Web2 and a large majority of the reason why Web3 is being plagued with so many problems as it is. The way that cryptocurrency and NFTs and ape bros and these Discord communities are kind of generating cults that say, well, if you're not in, we're going to berate you out. So I think it's really, really critical that we talk about that. And 
kind of coming from a Center for Public Deliberation kind of history as well. When I was at Colorado State University, I worked with a department that talked about how do you have discussions around tough diplomatic local problems? Because the reality is there are just some aspects of community that will never be solved and they're all based on values and ideologies. And it's very easy for people to fall into very sensical problems with their logic or their train of reason or their thought that snowball into the worst possible issues. So yeah, I think it's important yeah. that we do talk about it. Just an, an example of this was, I remember years ago at an Ubuntu Developer Summit, there was a guy who shall be unnamed in our community, hardcore, like free software person. Everything should be free, no non-free firmware, the whole nine yards. Basically Richard Stallman kind of figure. It wasn't Richard Stallman. And this guy was in a group discussion at an Ubuntu Developer Summit and turned the conversation over to how we should remove all non-free firmware from Ubuntu, how we should get rid of it. And the minute he started talking, a number of people in the room audibly grow because he had a history of this kind of stuff. He talked about a lot of this kind of stuff. And my boss, who this guy called Rick Spencer, who was in the room, just said, hang on, everybody. Hang on, hang on. He's expressed a viewpoint. He's expressed it politely and respectfully. Our community isn't anything unless we give him the courtesy to discuss it. And I love that because Rick could have piled on and could have done the same thing. So I love the fact that he opened up oxygen, and opened up space. And then we had a really interesting conversation and ultimately nothing changed. We still stuck with our original guns. Like we, we didn't go all fully free software, but I think then he felt like he was actually a, a participant and he, he probably left that conversation with a positive experience as opposed to thinking, well, they suck. They shut me down because then that I think can cause really negative behavior where people then form into their two different camps. I wanted to dovetail on that. I think it's really important to listen to the passionate people, whether they're critics or they're positive. I used to work with someone who was incredibly passionate and it would drive people kind of away from that person. And I saw it in a little bit of a different light that this person was passionate and had really a, a very strong stake in what was going on. So, and this person was critical. And I think that this person cared so deeply. And this is what I've seen in my own communities that someone cares so deeply about something that they feel that they cannot be silent anymore. Yeah. So I think it's very important. And the same thing goes for the people that are just yay, rah, rah about things and absolutely love them. I just wish sometimes that there was more of a way that the folks in the middle could be coaxed out a little bit to share their viewpoint. I think sometimes people forget that your biggest critics, your most passionate critics as well. The reason why they're passionate is because they care in communities. They want something to change. I just think if we look at intention with people, when people have got bad intentions, they've got bad, they're bad actors, then get rid of those people. But I think a lot of people have, most people I would like to think have good intentions, but they just see things differently. And then I think when we approach that conversation, like you're saying, Laurie, then we can all expand. I agree. So we had another question that I'd ask. So now that community is a teachable profession, as we wanted it to be, where does it go now? Yeah, who knows? <laughs> the thing that I've always dreamed of is that community, it's kind of like, to use a, a horrible cliche, it's kind of like throwing a rock into a lake and seeing the lines going out. When I got started in 1998, 100% of my focus and understanding of communities was really in technology and open source. We've seen it broaden out, right? We've seen it broaden out with Wikipedia and the maker revolution and in politics and all kinds of different ways. Like, I don't think we all started in open source. It, I think as we learn more of these things, what I want to get to is where community is everywhere. And the use case in my mind that's my dream use case, and we're not really there yet, 
is I want restaurants to build communities around their restaurants because those are the kind of folks who don't have any time. They're, the restaurant business is a hard business, right? And but I think when they can design and build communities that are give them enormous benefits, when we've got the art and the science down to a point where it's that easy to apply, consume, maintain, I feel like we'll just see community forming literally everywhere. I think the challenge in my mind is a community still really complicated. It's still hard. It requires a very set of mind, mindset. And a, I think the kind of people who will be listening to this who are interested in communities will share our mindset. But I want to get to a point where the guy in my local town who has this awesome pizza place, where he can build a community easily. And I'm hoping that we'll continue to move in that direction. Yeah, I think that's called the armchair problem, I think, where you have a business, just a very, very small business that just builds furniture and they make really good armchairs. And they're like, well, (laughs) how can I leverage or build community? And then it's like, well, you can't build a community around armchairs, but you can build a community around craftsmanship. You can build one around DIY. You can build one around design. So I think as, like I said, now that it's become a teachable profession, you said way back in 2020 in that last podcast, you were like, I'm really excited to see this occurring. And here we are. It's occurred. It's now a teachable profession. I think it's going to become possible for... Larry's Pizza around the corner to create a really wonderful food stuff community. Yeah, I hope so. I, for one, would like to see it become a discipline within which one can major or get a degree. I mean, Vinya and I talk about this quite a bit. We believe that it belongs in the social sciences and as maybe introduced preliminary with computer science, but at some point down the road, it would be really wonderful to have that because I think it's such a viable profession. And I think a real specific personality type is drawn to it. Someone with a lot of empathy and who likes to solve problems. And I don't know. And, and just the theoretical stuff is really cool too. So that's my yeah. wish. Totally agree. Totally agree. So as we're talking about community management becoming more embedded in the world and we already think about academia setting up courses and programs around it, which academia is always many years behind the practice and profession before they pick up something because they have such long cycles. Anyway, what are the last time we talked about the least understood aspects of being a community manager? I imagine over the last two years, a lot has changed. What are today the least understood aspects of being a community manager? The answer to this in my mind is kind of depressing, if I'm being honest with you, which is I think a lot of people, a lot of leaders in companies, especially, I don't think they really understand what community managers are there to do. I think they kind of understand what a community is. I mean, everybody understands what a community is, but everyone's view of it in their heads is different. It can be anything from a knitting community to Kubernetes. But I think a lot of leaders in companies and even outside of companies don't really know what the impact of a community manager should be. And they don't necessarily know how to evaluate the impact of a community manager. And I think what doesn't help here is a lot of community managers are very aware of this and not sure how to broach this conversation and not really sure how to resolve it. And everybody talks about the ROI of community, which I think the ROI of community is kind of a bad diet. I think it's something that we all want to get hooked on and that we won't stick with for a while. To me, you'll never be able to characterize in a spreadsheet the real ROI of a community because it's it, the soft skills in there. But I think we do need to be able to better articulate the impact of community in businesses. And I was on a discussion about with Sam Ramji and a few other people about this recently. How do you articulate your impact or value in a business? And I think often it happens the other way around where a company will say, 
this is the impact and the value I need you to bring. And it's misaligned. And then community managers don't last very long. So that to me is the biggest thing we need to fix. We need to be able to crisply in one sentence be able to demonstrate and articulate the value. And that's hard. So Yeah. And with a lot of my clients, the community ROI discussion, like to us in the community team, it's like, we've been talking about this for two years since your last podcast. It's ROI. It's ROI. Everybody saw ROI. And we're like, we're done. But at the same time, I still get it. All of my clients are just like, right, but can you like connect to the ROI like financially? It's like, well, no, because community is about augmentation and creating opportunities for curation to spread the work for all the ROI that is happening in other departments. So how are we supposed to prove the thing that is supposed to go through it without using those social scientific soft kind of measurements that we keep giving them? Yeah. Well, and the thing is as well as just briefly, because I know we're running out of time here, but I think part of the reason why, part of the reason why the ROI thing bugs me is because I think we're asking the wrong question. Like I was having a conversation with someone yesterday. They were asking me about how do you create the conditions for a sale in a community? Like, sorry, how do you sell to community members? And I, I was saying to them, in my mind, you don't sell to your community members. What you do is you create the conditions where you've built up so much goodwill with your community, with, you provide them with so much value that the conditions are right for them to go and make the sale themselves. You can see what good looks like. Anyone with, I think, half a brain can look at a great community and see how powerful that is. So to me, we need to reseed the expectations around this work away from things that appear in a spreadsheet in the same way that nobody would ever say, what's the ROI on love? I love my wife, Erica. I can't put that into numbers. I can't give you a formula for why I love my wife, why I love my son. But people can see it. Like when they see it, they know what love is. And I think we need to reframe that conversation with leaders and companies so they can observe the phenomenon as opposed to having to explain everything crisply with a spreadsheet. Unless you're Orbit, in which you created a metric literally called love. (laughs) That's true. I give that community a lot of flack, but I love that team. Just put it in the show notes for those who are not familiar with the Orbit model. There's also a episode... We have with them that I'll put in short notes. Yeah. And if I remember correctly, we're also renewing the conversation with Patrick at some point. So look forward to that at some inordinate amount of time. Yeah. Patrick's great. Yeah. I believe we have one major last question before we do move on to our value adds, but I think it's also really, really critical. There's been a transition, a change over the course of the past few years about how community manages metrics. And we've touched on it a little bit, but in chaos, we've also had this change occurring rather specifically because we now have a working group all about building entire metric models. And Orbit.love, Threado, Common Room, all of these systems are building entire ecosystem-based models for measurement and metrics. Yeah. What's your opinion about that? Do you think that it's more complex? Do you think that it's kind of kicking the horse a little too much? Or do you think that that is where it needs to be? So I'm really excited that we're talking more and more about metrics because for a long time, everybody was talking about goals. And I think goals are a fiction that we make up that we wish into existence, whereas metrics are real and exist right now. There's the social bite. Right. Right. <laughs> But I think people are overcooking metrics a bit where they want to track literally everything. They want to have dashboards and dashboards and graphs and this kind of stuff. And I think it's nothing wrong with that, but I think it's, I think it's necessary. To me, the most important element of doing metrics well, and I've given this feedback to every metrics company I've ever met, to Petersia, to Orbit, to Common Room, to Comsor, to the Linux Foundation with LFX, is to me, I don't want to see the graph. What I want to see, I want the, the platform to tell me what my next step is. If I know that the average time to first response in a pull request 
has been slowing down over the last two months. I want the tool to be able to say to me, you should go and these are the next steps that you should go through to optimize your code review time, for example. So my view on metrics is one is that I think we should simplify it. I think teams, community managers should pick no more than five, pick no more than five metrics, really understand them. And then to me, the real skill is being able to see almost like a guy with the sunglasses in CSI Miami, to be able to see kind of like, what are the patterns in what we're seeing? And then how do you develop a hypothesis? And then how do you test the hypothesis? Vini, I mean, I know you've been doing this for many years. Digital marketers are really great at this. They run an ad and then they see how it's performing. And then they run split testing on the ad to see which audience is resonating with. They change one variable at a time. To me, I think we need to apply that methodology into the way we track metrics. Whereas I feel like in, in the last year or so, everybody's just been talking about how do we track all of the things? And that's great. But in my mind, it's how you evaluate that data and then make decisions on it. So I would recommend anyone listen to this. Don't track more than five things. And then make sure that those five things, to our previous point, have a direct correlation to demonstrating your success. Like saying to your CEO, hey, we had 5,000 people come to our community this month. That doesn't really mean anything. What's more interesting to me is the impact that it had on the overall goals of the business or the project. How do we tie that metric to that, for example? And then I think that's when we start really moving the needle. I agree. I think we've become very metrics obsessed and it's gotten a little too noisy. Everybody struggles with it. Everybody struggles with engagement. I think maybe if we can kind of take a step back and take a deep breath and I'm with you three to five, that's it. And look at behavior, look at patterns in behavior, and then take that data and wrap it in stories. So when you go to present to your CEO or whoever in management, seeing you have 5,000 new members is one thing, but if you can say how someone was affected by what they learned in your community or whatever the impact was, that is what's going to be more effective. Yeah. I love that. I love that wrapping in stories. That's so important. Yeah. Totally agree. Tell the story that lets me write the next chapter is really wonderful. And I also really like, I live by this quote by Chris Mercer, truth is in the trends, power is in the pattern. Just focus on that. And if if there's a metric that doesn't apply to that trend, like then it's fine. Yeah. Yeah. We are unfortunately at that time, but we do have one thing that we're still doing. It's a new format. So listeners, please let us know if this is a format that you seem to appreciate, seem to enjoy. We'd love to hear from you. But that having been said, we're going to kind of move into value adds. So John, I will ask just a really quick reminder. Essentially, this is just what's happening in your personal life, in your job life, doesn't really matter where, that you think is just a really nice beneficial nugget for someone to know. There is something that I learned recently. I just hired a coach. I've never had a coach before. And I learned this from my coach, which I thought was really interesting. I was talking to him about sometimes I'll have some anxiety whether I'm offering enough value with a client. I just want to make sure that it's undeniable. One of the things that he kind of zoned in on here, and I think this is relevant to everybody listening, it's not just consultants or whatever. He said, value doesn't exist in you. It exists in the other person. So he says, if you're talking to a client and they're being responsive and they're asking you questions and they're saying, oh yeah, I can figure out, I know we can merge your feedback into this, this and this. So do you ever think like that? And I said, no. He said, let me guess. He said, the time when you worry about whether you're offering enough value is with the people where you get no response. I said, exactly. He said, well, the reason why that happens is that when you provide value, so that's what I do as a consultant, is that I help people with their community strategy and tactics and training and all that kind of stuff. He said, the only way they can unlock that value is if they internalize and action it. And he said, when you see people internalizing and actioning that value, then the value transaction occurs. And what it made me realize was that the importance of only working with people who really 
really want to achieve this, the kind of goals that you've got. And it's one of the reasons why I kind of knew this and kind of didn't. It's one of the reasons why I don't work with companies anymore where communities like something they'd like to have a go at, but they're not really that interested in it because it won't work out well. So that was really insightful to me. And the only other thing he said was the number one attraction why people work together is not just the thing they know, it's the energy that they exude. That when somebody is fun and vibrant and dynamic and enthusiastic, people love working with those people. So when you've got the right balance of enthusiasm and you're only going to work with people who really are aligned on what you're trying to do, he said, you'll be better at what you do. So it was super interesting. So that's the only nugget that I've learned recently. So one of the things that I have preached to my clients and to the people that I talk to, it has always been that there are two different kinds of people who don't believe in plans. There's the people who plan obsessively, think of all the things, and then they go forward. Something happens and they're like, well, plan's thrown out. And then there's the second set of people who are just like, well, I'm not going to plan because I'm just going to throw it out. And I've learned recently that... It is very difficult, even when you do have an understanding of iterative planning and mistakes make better plans, get good, then get better. All these phrases that I have that have like preached them all. I'm now in a state where like I have moved from consultant kind of mode to owning my own business now. It's a lot harder to practice what you preach when it comes to sticking to the plan and knowing when to iterate. So there's just been a certain level of stress there, but... I find that the same advice still applies. You make a mistake, you really don't trust the plan necessarily. That doesn't mean throw it out. Just iterate, do what you can. It's very, very difficult. But talking to people about your mistakes has been one of the biggest things that I've learned. So that's what I say. When you make a mistake, iterate the plan and make sure you're not iterating it yourself. That's my value add. My value add is I'm currently on a health journey and trying to figure out how to live healthier and resolve some medical issues. I don't want to go into, but when the doctor told me you look healthy and I knew that even though my markers all came back healthy, that there's something not right and I needed to take that initiative and own it and start learning about living healthy. So it's a journey I'm just embarking on. I'm very new too, but it's also exciting. I'm starting to read a lot and learn a lot about living healthy. Thank you. Mine's kind of personal along with Georg's too, and that is that I'm in remission from cancer and it has been a very deeply and profound thing. And one of the things that was taken away from me is something that I really didn't realize. I knew it was a passion, but I didn't realize how deep it was. And that was that I wasn't able to swim. And it's taken me a year to, you know, go through treatment and complications and whatnot. And I had all my different doubts about it because I used to swim for an hour and a half, three times a week with my team and I really had a lot of stuff in my head about getting back into the water and, oh my God, I'm only going to be able to swim for 20 minutes. And I'm going to look, it's not going to be this, it's not going to be that. And like, finally, I just shut my head down and I was like, just get back in the water. It's going to be fine. Get back in there. And I have been like a monster. So I just have been like, oh, you know, it's really kind of turbocharged me again. And I kind of feel like I can't go back to that person I was but I can certainly reclaim parts of that. So for me, it's been like a tremendous source of joy and achievement and relief. So I think there's two parts to it in the get out of your head and ignore your head and just go do something that you think is really going to make you happy. And then also just like the joy of finding these things that were part of you in the past and you can now bring forward. Wow. 
solid value add. And I think that on this, the just amazing life advice overall. So thank you all so much for joining. And to our dear listeners, we do actually have a special announcement, special podcast, special announcement. We are actually partnering with CMX and it's probably already happened by now. But if you want more Jono, if you want more Jono, next week on Tuesday the 9th, we will have a fireside chat with Jono and Venya and myself, and we will discuss gamification. Sounds like fun stuff to look up. We'll drop a link in the show notes once the recording goes live. And yeah, thank you, Jono, for joining us today. Thank you. Pleasure. Yeah. You, Jono. Pleasure is all mine. Thank you, Lori and Venya. And dear listener, thank you so much for listening to this very special revisit episode. We do really want to hear about your input and insights. So feel free to email us at podcast at chaos.community. We appreciate you hanging out today, Jonna. We really appreciate you, dear listener. And please share this podcast with your friends, family, colleagues, whoever you think might be interested. Once again, thank you so much from your chaos community. Have a great day.